This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Well, welcome to Clean Tech Talk again. Um, Michael Bernard here, uh, hosting with Zach Shahan in the background. And we're talking to John Cook, PhD, cognitive scientist, and you know, key person behind the award-winning Skeptical Science Climate Myths Debunking website. So welcome, John. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Well, it's great to talk to you as well. I mean... <sighs> I feel like we've been on Facebook and we have a bunch of acquaintances in common. And, you know, I've been aware of you for years, of course. But, you know, uh, I, there's just a couple of names I want to throw at you because I, I dealt with Stephen Lewandowski over wind turbine climate, you know, wind turbine disinformation debunking, um, you know, closer to a decade ago than not. And obviously, he's a regular co-author of yours. And also, I, I, I was really curious if you actually know Simon Chapman. Because I feel like you and he must have overlapped at some point. I don't know Simon, but I mean, Stefan Lundowski was my PhD supervisor and, and single-handedly responsible for dragging me into the world of social science and psychology and cognitive science. So, um, so I, yeah, I definitely am very familiar with Steve. Well, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, one of, I, I think that you were co-author with him of the um, study, which really got a lot of people in the denialosphere riled up where you basically said, they're all conspiracy theorists. You know, a, a, a study I've cited many times. You want to talk about that um, study and your findings out of that just a little bit? Because that's a very interesting set of correlation and it runs through your thesis, which as one does i was rereading this morning yeah definitely it's a i find it a fascinating story um initially uh, steve himself published a paper separate to me um, with a few other colleagues of his where they um conducted uh, a survey asking people questions about their climate beliefs uh, their beliefs in various different uh, conspiracy theories and what they found was a statistical link people who denied climate science were more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. And not just conspiracy theories about climate change, but conspiracy theories about um, all sorts of issues, um, whether it's the moon landing or Princess Diana was assassinated or, or whatever. And so after he published this research, uh, climate deniers got really hot and bothered by the research and, and the suggestion that and denying climate science um, was linked to being conspiratorial. And so their argument against this result was to start proposing different conspiracy theories to explain how he got that result in the first place. 
So they were basically arguing, we are not conspiracy theorists, and here is my conspiracy theory to prove it. <laughs> I read a bunch of that. It was, and then you, then you, I think you joined in publishing the follow-on to that. Exactly. So um, as the conspiracy theories came out, they started expanding and becoming more elaborate, as conspiracy theories always do. And it expanded to the point where I started to be, become involved in uh, the conspiracy, the you know the original research. Even though I had nothing to do with that research, the conspiracy theories uh, suggested that I was also part of it. And and so we were bemused watching this es- ever escalating kind of internet frenzy um, of escalating conspiracy theories, thinking do these people not possess any ounce of self-awareness? Do they not see <laughs> that they're actually proving the original thesis of the research? And so we uh, decided to do a content analysis, collected all that, um, all the examples of conspiracy theories and published the paper uh, summarizing the, the whole event. Yeah, I wrote about it in um, uh, Queen Technica a few years back, just because it's such an absurd story, but it has a correlation. Now, now you, your original degree in work was in physics, but you shift, shifted as you, as we've talked about to cognitive science, which is a, you know, quite a different space. So this may or may not be something fair to ask you. Um, but I was thinking about, there was the, the survey that was done and I, I'd like to, to see if you have better references for this. And I suspect you will. There's the survey that was done on Reddit, of former climate change deniers. Um, it was, you know, kind of published and cleaned up by Yale Climate Communication, if memory serves. And it found that, you know, 50%-ish of people had um, found, had stopped being climate change deniers in part because of, you know, the actual evidence. As you point out in your thesis, you know, just giving people accurate information helps. Um, But another one was that people, you know, about 20% of people looked around and saw that they were surrounded by odd groups of people, um, not credible people. And I, I think of your study when I think of that, and I think of, of Stephen's work um, uh, as well, because conspiracy theorists are the tinfoil hat wearers of our you know, ecosystem, and they're pretty odd. Um, and they are the climate change deniers more than not. So um, that's the only reference I have, um, and that's a very weak Reference. It's a Reddit survey asking former climate change deniers, you know, why did you change your mind? What other research has been done in that space that you're aware of related to, you know, why people change their minds around climate change? I know you've done a lot of work in this space, but, you know, I'm interested in peeling, peering out, out that conspiracy ideation and the oddball side. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and I guess it's probably helpful before I directly answer the question to kind of put it in a broader context, because uh, one of the questions I get asked most often when I give public talks about climate communication and misinformation and climate denial is how do you change a climate denier's mind? And, And the way I most commonly answer it is to point out that A, um, Climate deniers are around only 10% of the population. And B, a lot of research shows that efforts to um, change climate deniers' minds usually either have no effect or are even can be counterproductive and cause them to double down on their beliefs. And so um, 
the conclusion is that uh, if we have limited resources in trying to raise awareness of climate change or trying to build support for climate action, then um, we're better off spending it um, trying to outreach that 90% of the population who are open to evidence, who um, aren't going to react to scientific data with conspiracy theories and, and denial. Um, and so, so it's, I think it's just good to put that question in, in that broader context. Who, is, oh. who are the audiences that we should be reaching? That said, uh, it, it is also a very interesting question. How do you change the mind of people who often respond to evidence with conspiracy theories? Uh, and, and there is research into ways that you can possibly do this. Uh, and, in fact, um, Lewandowski and myself are at this moment working on a... Um, a report, uh, uh, a conspiracy theory handbook, which we're hoping to bring out in April. And in that, we just summarise the literature into this answering your exact question. Uh, and I'm actually just pulling it up in front of me right now to, so that I, I have the uh, answers at my fingertips. <laughs> and uh, one of them is that the most effective messenger for groups in these communities are former members of that community. So if you have a person who was uh, a conspiracy theorist and then kind of saw the light and, and, and can tell their story of how they went from believing the conspiracy theory to um, stepping outside of it and, and having a more rational point of view, that, that is, if anyone can change their mind, that's the kind of person who has the greatest chance. Another interesting approach, I haven't really tried this myself, but it, it sounds logical, is that uh, the way that conspiracy theorists think of themselves is as critical thinkers, that they, they aren't fooled by the, you know, the official mainstream account. They, um, they're not like the sheeple who just believe what they <laughs> tell them. And, and so they frame that as critical thinking. Um, and critical thinking is a good thing. Like scientists are critical thinkers. We're trained to uh, assess evidence in appropriate ways and come to um, like robust conclusions. But uh, what you can do is affirm that value of critical thinking, but then try to direct that critical thinking towards a more critical assessment of using critical thinking. Can you really conclude that this conspiracy theory is realistic? Somebody reached out to me because I, I write on this subject relatively often. Um, you know, one of my more read and shared things is how to talk to conservatives about climate change. And I, you know, reference you and Lewandowski's work and I, I reference Kaz Hayhoe, Catherine Hayhoe, which I'll, I'll get back to. But in this case, um, are, are you on a Kaz, like a talking level with Catherine Hayhoe? Uh, I'm on the same level with Catherine Hayhoe that I am with you, which is to say that. Uh, we're on a whole bunch of social media. We've interacted with messaging and we've never met or talked face to face. But I will say she's Canadian, like me. Uh, well, maybe that's it. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I consider Catherine a friend, but I'm not quite at a CAS level yet. So I'm oh, she, she referred to herself that way. I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, she <laughs> referred to her that way somewhere. And I, I sometimes slip into that. And you're right. It's, it's a, an undue familiarity. Oh, no, I'm not criticizing. I'm just... But yeah, so what reached out to me, what, what happened with one of these things is that somebody reached out to me that was a very interesting thing. I'm sure you've had this kind of problem, this kind of interaction as well. A um, woman who is a state representative for Oregon uh, reached out saying, ah, help, because she's um, 
in one of the coastal districts or surrounding Astoria, the mouth of the river that runs through Portland. Um, and it's a rural district and it has, um, among other things, a Koch brothers owned pulp and paper mill as a major employer in the region. And, you know, it's a fisheries, agriculture and forestry district. That's a, those are, and tourism, those are its major industries. And three out of the four of them are trend more conservative, but she's a democratic state representative um, elected in a state which is trying to declare a, a climate emergency, leading to Republican state representatives actually leaving the state to prevent the vote. Huh. Um, and she's in a rural conservative district and just survived a recall. I mean, basically, she managed to get elected and they immediately tried to recall her and she managed to survive that. But she and her husband are committed to the region and she's committed to public service, having been a former social services caseworker and now a you know elected representative. And she's trying to gain sufficient sufficient support and reduce attacks for the climate actions that the Democratic Party and this Democratic uh, State Party are trying to achieve. So she reached out and said, help. So I, I provided a bunch of guidance and I'm publishing a big article. It's coming out shortly on that. But, you know, that's just kind of that contextual thing that do you get actually those kind of questions from politicians and others saying, help me understand how to deal with this circumstance? The kind of requests I get tend to be more uh, around my area of research expertise, which is um, misinformation related. So, um, so the, the, I do yeah, get requests from like public figures or, or politicians, uh, but usually it's of the sort like, how do I address you know this type of misinformation, or how do I respond, or what is the most effective um, strategy? Uh, and but in the the situation you're talking about, I could see how, yeah, people like yourself or Catherine Hayhoe are the, the perfect, um, the perfect type of people. Like that approach of, a like as I was just saying, trusted messengers and, and shared values. I think are crucial strategies in that kind of context. Yeah, I, I actually have kind of a five part thing, and it's based on somewhat on your yours and Lewandowski's work, and some a lot of it is on what Hayhoe actually succeeds at doing. Uh, for those in our audience who aren't familiar with this person, whose name John and I keep throwing around, I'll give you the brief summary. Uh, she's a climate scientist. She's at um, I'm going to maybe get this wrong, Texas Tech University. She heads a climate. Uh, division down there. She's one of the top, I think she's now one of the top 100 global climate influencers. She's got this great um, YouTube series called Global Weirding, where she explains stuff. Um, And she's Canadian living in Texas, and she's an evangelical Christian. So it's a really interesting mix of overlaps. Um, And she's incredibly successful at communicating to evangelical Christians to move them along the pathway towards uh, acceptance of the science of climate change, acceptance of the need for climate action. You know, John, did I uh, characterize Catherine Wright from your perspective? That was an excellent summary. I'm sure she'd be very happy with it. Yeah. So when I talk about um, Catherine Hayhoe and about communication, I, I, I lean into that very first part. Too. I, I use the tribe term. Um, you know, and it's a loaded term, I think, but I, you know, but it's back to that influential person. Um, and I love the nuance you provided a former member of one of these bubbles 
is powerful because they had respect before and they've left the bubble, but they still know the language. Um, I tend to refer to it as you have to be in the tribe. Um, in Catherine's case, she's she can talk to evangelical Christians because she's an evangelical Christian and she can establish those connections. Then you, I, I assert, and I'd, I'd love your feedback on this because you spend more, your days and weeks and years researching this. You need a, a position of authority of some sort. You need to be a respected member um, in that space, whether it's a, a rabbi or a pastor or head of a climate thing or have a PhD, then you actually need to know what you're talking about, expertise. And then you need time because it's a non-trivial thing. And finally, the, the argument I tend to make is that it's incremental. Um, you know, Dana Nuticelli, which I probably pronounced wrong, is another co- No, that's right. Yep. Another regular collaborator of yours, you and he and Catherine frequently refer to the four stages, five stages of denial. I've got a different chart I use for positions that people take on a continuum, but the same argument applies is that you have to spend time for each state change in belief. And then there's potentially some backsliding. And, you know, I, I say that Catherine's videos are excellent in terms of keeping people from backsliding, but won't move people step to step. But then each interaction, you can move them about one step at a time. So those are the five things, tribe, authority, expertise, time, and incrementalism. What's your take on that? Because I, I love your insight as a deep expert in this space. Oh, that sounds excellent. And um, I, I love short uh, bullet lists of, of items like that, that uh, under half a dozen items that people can easily remember. And I, this, I have a kind of a nerdy obsession with this, but whenever I get a list like that, I try to turn it into an acronym. So <laughs> while you were talking, I've been writing these down and trying to uh, turn it into an acronym already, but um, TTs <laughs> so far. So it doesn't yeah, work. It, it needs workshopping. But um, well, it does look, if we actually put expertise and authority in inverse, tribe, expertise, authority, time, and incremental, it looks like a um, New Zealand Maori term. Uh, <laughs> and we could reference Taika Waititi, um, ah, you know, right. one of your Antipodian fellows, and we could you know, tie in a, um, a Thor at Ragnarok reference. That sounds pretty good to me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> or we could just go with tea time um, and say, you know, here's the five things you need to know in order for me to be excellent, which is grammatically incorrect, but might work out. I'll, I'll flip you. I'd love for you to take these five things and turn them into an acronym that works. <laughs> that would be hilariously good. Um, but acronyms aside, uh, it like theoretically, all of that sounds um, really sound from a research perspective. Uh, like in the case of climate change, but I would, I'm sure that this applies to a lot of issues tribalism is is the most important thing um there's been surveys of surveys like you know meta-analyses of research into climate beliefs and political affiliation is the biggest predictor by far so political affiliation or, or tribalism is, is what drives people's attitudes about climate change uh, there's a lot of research into the importance of authority and expertise and how that influences people um, I don't know uh, about the time and incrementalism research into that doesn't come immediately to mind, but um, uh, overall, yeah, that sounds like a really good formula. Yeah. So it, let, let's, I'd like to poke at the tribalism a bit. I, 
I have a feeling, and this is a connotation versus denotation thing. I have a feeling that tribalism makes people upset when they hear it applied to them. I'm not a member of a tribe. I'm not a tribal person. I'm not, you know, a groupthink person. But what's your take on that? Have you have you seen insights on that, or that specific term, or do you prefer a different term? I use that term because it's. I've tr- I know that there, it's a problematic term in, in certain ways. Like I've used it in certain contexts. Some people in the audience have objected to it for various reasons. Not so much that reason, more because it's loaded from a cultural point of view. Mm-hmm. But I've kind of put that put it out there. I would be happy to switch to a better term if someone um, provides it and I'm still waiting. Uh, I mean, generally, social identity is, is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, it's just concise and it captures it um, better than any other phrase I know. But the important thing is the recognition that humans are social animals. We've evolved over millions of years um, to survive in tribes, in, in small social groups. So that's how our brains are hardwired at the moment. And um, so just recognising that that. Um, biological reality is really important um, whenever you're um, dealing with issues of psychology, communication, public engagement. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I just finished, um, you know, so a, a lot of the way I think about global solutions around climate change and technology, and I, I've gone deep and broad on a whole bunch of different domains because I'm nerdy, um, but a lot of the way, one of the key things that I think about in terms of assessing um, whether a climate solution, a proposed climate solution is viable or not, is does it require a change to human behavior or cognition? Um, you know, and if it does require that a whole, that masses of humans change the way they behave without a significant transformation in the incentives they're given and the um, ease of taking a better option, then they won't do it. Um, so, you know, you can't, convince a whole bunch of people to wear hair shirts um, to save the climate. You can't convince 8 billion people to do that. And, you know, having reading, having read, um, so that was a, a whole bunch of that came out of my study looking at behavioral economics, especially, which, you know, is incredibly strongly. I had didn't, I'd never dug into the psychology behind behavioral economics before until I read Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow recently. And I, I just want to, you know, I've got a few questions about thinking fast and slow. And one of them is, you know, inside the world of cognitive science and research, because you've got a PhD in it, uh, how is that book viewed and how, uh, you know, how accurate is it? What quibbles do you have when, when cognitive scientists get together in your, you know, um, academic boardrooms with the dark wood and the pint, you know, little glasses of sherry, um, which I'm, you know, everybody knows is academia and rant about Mar- Marxism and postmodernism, you know, and plot to take over the world. What do you talk about when you talk about Kahneman and thinking fast and slow, if anything? Well, I'm, I guess uh, I'm still waiting to be invited into those rooms and <laughs> receive my jacket with the elbow patches. I'm still waiting on that. That hasn't arrived yet. But, um, but uh, like I can mainly speak for myself. I, I've found that Kahneman's work has been highly influential uh, on my own work and to the point where, like, right now, it's, it's foremost of my thoughts. Like, I'm working on practical 
interventions, using games, using humour and all these different things that are directly referencing uh, the idea of fast and slow thinking and how, how difficult slow thinking is. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, is it possible to turn what is traditionally slow thinking processes into fast thinking? And, and I can get into that in more detail later on. Well, why don't we, but, why to answer we your question, yeah, Kahneman, I think, is, is crucially important and valuable way. Well, I think this is a, a really useful time to segue. Um, I really love you as a cognitive scientist to assert, you know, for you know, the audience and you know, to clarify my thinking, when you say system one and system two are thinking slow, fast and thinking slow, <clears throat> how do you characterize those or how do they, you know, because I know how Kahneman characterized in the book, but let's introduce them for our audience. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I tend to use the terms fast and slow thinking just because it's more descriptive than system one and system two. But w- uh, what I mean by that is that there is essentially two different ways that our brains think. One is the automatic, instinctive, gut level um, uh, thinking that just happens automatically and effortlessly. And, and we do it all day, every day. We, we just see something in the corner of our eye. We, uh, we react to things. We emotionally respond to stimuli. Um, it's, it happens instantaneously and effortlessly. The other type of thinking is slow thinking or system two thinking. And that's where we have to consciously reason through um, issues. Like it, it might be um, forcing ourselves to concentrate on something or forcing ourselves to do a difficult calculation or, or reason through a difficult problem. And it takes a lot more effort and it's much slower. And um, because of that, almost all the thinking that we do and during the day is system one fast thinking um, and system two slow thinking is uh, happens a lot less. One of the key takeaways I, I had from the book is how incredibly lazy our brains are um, and how lazy system two is. It, it surfaces according to what I, my understanding, and I'd like your insight on this for as short as time as possible, to give as quick an answer as possible unless it's dragged into the light and forced to pay attention for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. Um, so, But I also like the way Kahneman is, is, tries to be kind. Like when he says that our <laughs> brains are lazy, he doesn't mean that as an insult. The other way you could characterize it is efficient. Like our brains do the minimum amount of work they need to do in order for us to survive, to, to survive a predator jumping out of the bushes or, you know, survive our, our daily challenges. Most of the time, quick thinking, heuristics, um, mental shortcuts, all those little quick uh, like mental shortcuts that we need to get by usually are successful a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, I, I do have to admit, one of the things that I kept returning to and I kept hearing this in his voice was he just said, and here's a situation where I was incredibly subject to fast thinking and I was wrong and I haven't been able to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, it's, uh, and he even identifies the book and saying, this book is for water cooler conversations to make people aware that there are these problems and help you identify them in others because we suck at identifying them in ourselves. So it's really interesting to say that we are so trapped, even people who spend as much time as you and Kahneman do in understanding how human cognition works 
in the same traps of human cognition. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, you know, you, you may have a different opinion than Kahneman, which would be fun too. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't feel like I'm further enough along in my career to disagree with the Nobelist, but um, <laughs> of his stature. But I, one thing that really, I've been rereading Fast and Slow Thinking recently, and one thing jumped out at me because it, it's now at this moment in my career very applicable to my own research. He pointed out that you, you have the, essentially there's almost three ways of thinking in, in a sense, or maybe a better way to characterize it is there are three ways that we come to conclusions about things or make decisions. One is the fast thinking heuristic. We just have our gut reaction automatic response. The other is slow reasoned thinking. But the third one, and this is where it's really interesting, is how do experts uh, come to conclusions because uh, uh, you have an expert whether it's a pilot or a fireman in a dangerous situation or, or a doctor they can look at a situation and instantly um, be able to assess it accurately and, and come to a, an accurate like an appropriate conclusion and the reason why is because as ex experts, they've been practicing this thousands and thousands of times over and over again. And so they've basically taken a slow thinking process and over time and practice converted it to quick thinking. Uh, it's, it's a practice expert heuristic. Yeah. I remember that explicit discussion. I, I forget the name of the uh, psychologist. He was count, you know, he was, um, you know, partnered with and trying to resolve this, but the, the focus was on intuition being accurate versus inaccurate if memory serves. And the, if, if I understand the end of the thing, and I you know, like your correction on this, Kahneman's assertion was they kind of came to the agreement at the end of years of battling with this and trying to characterize it. The Kahneman was right about longer term perspectives into the future you know, beyond a few days, beyond a few weeks, months. Um, and the other gentleman was correct very much about um, experts doing complex things like fire chiefs, you know, in the news today. And I'm you know, sure your, your friends are, are in Australia and relatives in Australia are posting stuff on your Facebook just as I'm seeing the horrific stuff there. Um, but they made immediate intuitive decisions about the right action and then acted on it immediately. But it was a very immediacy versus durational thing. I saw a strong time duration piece in there, but what's your perspective on that? Uh, I, I don't think I've got up to that part of the book in my reread. So um, yeah, I, I couldn't really say. But yeah, it's, it's very much so that uh, to your, to your point though, to support it, having just finished it literally last week, um, it was, you know, very much that experts of a certain type who are doing things like neurosurgeons, um, specifically the uh, anesthesiologists were called out as well. They're intuitive, something feels wrong because they do it half a dozen or a dozen times a day, is a deeply powerful, fast thinking, more likely to be accurate thing. Whereas, you know, uh, Tony Seba, I don't know if you read Tony Seba, but he's uh, somebody that uh, Zach, um, you know, gets gets published stuff about in clean technique about Tony Seba all the time. I actually thought of Tony Seba when I was reading Fast and Slow and read Kahneman's thought upon pundits. Um, so Tony Seba is an economist out of Stanford. 
I, I haven't figured out whether he's a behavioral economist on the right side of, you know, science and cognition, or if he's an econ loving, you know, Chicago school economist, um, who I fundamentally think are, you know, not empirically sound now, um, which I kind of thought before. But Tony Seba is famous for saying that um, uh, uh, private automotive, automotive, automobile sales will plummet by 80% by 2030 due to autonomous vehicles. Um, so he's making substantive predictions about 10 years out, and he's making them bold and flashy. And one of the things that Kahneman says in Fast and Slow is that pundits who get asked back are the ones who make the most extreme statements, and they rarely internalize the um, they really internalize the counters to that and put them in nuanced terms. So the people that you know get those projections, um, get those talking head rolls, are not the nuanced thinkers. Uh, you know, it's just one of those interesting things. And I I think that to pull this back to climate science and climate communication, I think about the people we see on um, you know the media talking from the denialist or delay perspective, they're unnuanced statements. Um, I see them out of Australia and the United States. Um, but they're very, from a cognitive science, they're very compelling statements. And this is back to what is effective communication for humans and why. So, you know, I, I'm, I was thinking in terms of my discussions with um, Tiffany Mitchell, the representative from Oregon, um, I've been, I counseled with her to leverage Lindsey Graham's comments and Matt Gates's comments about climate change because their current modern Republican representatives with seniority in the party. Um, and they say that climate change is real. So what about that leveraging, that, that tactic of quoting Republicans who accept climate change, people who are currently in the tribe? Do you think that's a viable path? Well, I mean, definitely yes. But the challenge is there are a lot of, as you say, um, loud, confident voices making simplistic statements, which are very compelling, um, who belong to that conservative tribe who are saying the opposite to that. And they tend to yeah. be louder as well. And, and it, they probably would get more attention on an outlet like Fox News um, in terms of climate statements, at least, than Lindsey Graham or Matt Gates. <laughs> I haven't actually heard Matt Gates statements about climate change. I'll have to uh, look those up. I'm interested in reading those. Um, and, and that's really a big challenge, I think, is that, A, simple statements are more believable than more complex statements, and, B, statements said with confidence are more believable as well. So if you have people who are saying um, simple authoritative statements that climate change isn't real or, or you know, something supporting a climate denial position with confidence and simplicity and they're getting a lot of media attention, that is a real challenge. And uh, one thing that I found in my research and other researchers have found is that even if the public are hearing those accurate statements, even if you do get, um, you are quoting Lindsey Graham to conservative audiences uh, and they hear that and they internalise that and that's all good. But then they also hear the misinformation as well. Uh, if they're presented with conflicting pieces of information, what you find is this cancelling out effect because if people can't resolve the conflict between fact and myth, then they just disengage and they don't believe in either. Yeah. I, I, I have a, a heuristic that I think that you'll have a, a better uh, handle on. It's just a rule of thumb I've heard, and um, it's a cognitive 
heuristic about overcoming biases. Um, I didn't find it in Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, but you may be aware of it. The assertion I heard years ago, which seems to hold true from an anecdotal perspective, is that if you have a bias, it takes one supporting information piece of information to maintain it, and ten supporting pieces of inf- or ten um, opposed pieces of information to force you to overcome that bias. So. It's easy, in other words, to maintain people in a biased state just by repeating occasionally stuff, but you have to keep repeating stuff over and over again, and they have to get 10 times or more countering examples. Are you aware of that heuristic, and do you have a a perspective from cognitive psychology on that? Uh, I haven't heard that particular figure. Uh, I mean, generally speaking, that principle sounds right, that um, confirming evidence is given more weight than uh, disconfirming evidence, whether it's 10 to 1 or some other figure, I'm I'm sure. Uh, I don't think you can be that precise about it because it would vary from issue to issue and person to person. But, um, but, But certainly that dynamic, that evidence that you already agree with is, is just given more weight. And also experts that you agree with are assigned more expertise than hearing an expert who you disagree with. Um, you would just conclude they don't know what the hell they're talking about because, because you don't like the message that they're giving regardless of their actual level of expertise. So, um, so in principle, yes, uh, it's true that uh, confirming evidence and confirming experts are given more weight. Yeah, it's a, it's a an interesting space because um, it's so easy to you know for the people that are in that challenge space, and it's it's not ten percent of the people, and nine percent was the, the number I heard of, of actual believers, and I think that's the one you quote, but it's under ten percent. Um, they listen to Fox News, but so do an awful lot more Americans, and so they will hear confirmatory pieces, and they'll also now. Um, tying this back to uh, you know Facebook losing uh, fifty billion dollars of market capitalization this morning, I think it was eight um, percent drop. I'm not quite sure why. I assume somebody said something bad, but Facebook is a bubble for many people in you know conspiracy ideation and climate denial and you know especially conservative politics of repetitions of supporting confirmatory messages. Um, has your research dealt with the, the social media bubbles and the confirmatory messages there? Uh, my research doesn't specifically look at um, like Facebook from that kind of social network perspective, but, uh, but I'm certainly familiar with the research that does. And the real challenge there is that Facebook's financial model is based on delivering um, content that gets clicks and likes. Like they want to maximize their interactivity. And the way they do that is by providing confirming evidence. So if they have a financial interest in delivering to you content that you want to see, and uh, if they deliver to you content that you didn't agree with, then um, they're going to get less likes and clicks and, and make less money. And so that's an inherently problematic model. Uh, and given so many people use Facebook, the fact that their financial model motivates them to maintain these echo chambers is a real social problem. Well, it, it strikes me to return to tribalism. Um, I, I think back to you know uh, some lay people's assertions about this. I understand that we go back to the hunter-gatherer stage. Our brains are 
equipped to handle something like 150 people maximum in a social group. They can maintain the relationships and the interconnections and interact appropriately and respectfully within that. Is, is that a, a reasonable number or am I misremembering that? Uh, it sounds like you're reading from the same book I was. I remember reading something like that in Sapiens. Okay, so the, the um, question there for Facebook, it strikes me that A, it's extending the number of people that you can in some way, shape, or form have a connection with, but it's still reinforcing tribes and you can get attracted to tribes who keep providing you confirmatory stuff. And you know, I think the term that you know, Kahneman uses is cognitive ease. Um, so the question there is Facebook designed to optimize cognitive ease for people, regardless of whether that's cognitively sound. It's interesting. Like the, to me, there are three big psychological challenges, psychological and social challenges to solving issues like denial, misinformation, um, post-truth. Uh, and we've already covered two of them. One of them is echo chambers, what we're talking about now. And the other is the slow thinking versus fast thinking challenge. And finding solutions that uh, can um, not only overcome the, the psychological challenges, just the way our human brains are built, but also the social and technological solutions that are just or problems that have arisen just over the last decade. Uh, that's what's got researchers like myself and our, my entire research community tearing our hair out, trying to figure out ways to try to um, come up with effective solutions because it, it is becoming a problem that is not only huge but also very interconnected and complicated. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund clean tech talk.